Welcome to Inside the War Room. Sorry for a little bit of a delay there past week or so. Had some computer problems, and so I think we're back on track to get everything up and rolling. Tons of episodes in the hopper, especially this one with Michael Hilsick, which has been recorded for a little while now, so apologies for just getting this to you. We had him on to chat about his new book, but first, be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. That's right, you can never miss an episode if you are subscribed there, and oh, if you want to support a show that is where we do it, warroommedia.com. Okay, as I mentioned, my guest today is Michael Hilsick. I can't speak. That's normal. His book is Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. Michael is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who writes a daily blog on latimes.com. He's got seven different books. We'll link to his Twitter uh, so you can find out all the information about him and his book in the show notes where warroommedia.com. Let's get to Michael. Michael, it is lovely to have you on the program. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good, Ryan. And yourself? I hope you're doing well. Yeah, you know, it is warm here in Texas. We kind of got a little reprieve, and this week it is, it's just, it's gotten hot again. So it's been a little, little depressing, but uh, I think next week it's going to, um, going to cool back off. So, okay. But yeah, well, we're heading into another heat wave, we're told. Oh, man. Um, yeah, we had a brutal this weekend. Yeah. We had like a, I don't know, 60 days or something with no real rain. It was, oh, it was, it was brutal. Um, okay. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have the new book out, but you've got a lot of books. I'm curious, what made you want to be a writer? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, you know, when I was in college, um, I was editor of the college newspaper and um, then, um, you know, many years after I, I entered uh, journalism, the opportunity came up, the subject came up to write a book. So I, I did that. And then uh, you know, I enjoy having this variety of, of challenge in writing, um, you know, short, short articles, deadline articles, and then longer form uh, approaches, um, uh, you know, books. I love books. Every book is basically a, uh, a set of problems to solve, and they're always different. So uh, generally, you know, I I come across a subject that I'm interested in and can't find enough to satisfy my curiosity. So I decide uh, the the solution is to write it myself. So <laughs> there you go. That's well, how these things develop. The readers can't see, but you have a plethora of interesting looking books behind you. So you obviously are, are reading quite widely. And that, just one more on that. Um, some authors, I know they will write, they will cover a topic for you know six months, a year or two, and then they'll kind of take that, make it into a book, and then, um, you know, expound upon it from their articles. But looking at your past works, you kind of, you you got some about the Hoover Dam, obviously our topic for today, you've kind of got a wide array. Are, are you kind of doing that? Or is it just more of a, a pure passion project that you get interested in, and then you kind of go from there? Well, it's somewhat the latter, but I, I, I gravitate towards certain kinds of subjects. I like uh, opportunities to explain complicated things, and that often leads me to technology. Uh, I like uh, history, so when I can combine uh, 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 an examination of a historical period with a technology uh, and and then, of course, personalities, that's the sweet spot. And I think uh, a lot of my books have fallen into that category. Hoover Dam uh, was one. I also wrote uh, a biography of Ernest Lawrence, who invented the cyclotron, and that, that really uh, turned into a book about uh, uh, particle physics and the physics community in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, a really critical time for that science. Uh, so uh, one of my first books was uh, basically a chronicle of the first generation at Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Center, where they invented the personal computer and ethernet and the laser printer and a lot of other technologies that we take for granted. And um, that that was a, a lot of fun. I met hundreds of really interesting scientists and engineers. And that's uh, all of that is what makes this fun and interesting. Okay. So before we get into the book, um, because we're doing with history, uh, I was actually interviewing someone earlier, a, a, a true crime filmmaker. Um, and, I, and she was unpacking her objective with telling this 
particular true crime story. Um, what, what are you trying to accomplish in this book? What's the the narrative, the thread? What are you trying to weave together? You've kind of touched touch about these intersections, but what is the big thesis here? Well, if we're talking about Iron Empires, which was my my latest book, the the idea was to examine <clears throat> the the uh, the personalities and the individuals who were who really uh, gave rise to the first Gilded Age, and I say it's the first because I think more recently we've been in the second Gilded Age, and also it was a story of basically the birth of the railroad industry and railroad technology. So, so that came together. In fact, my original idea was to write a book about the building of the transcontinental railroad, the first transcontinental railroad. Uh, and I realized in doing sort of the feasibility study for that book that th that story had been told and told several times and told fairly well, um, but that the real story was not what happened uh, to bring the railroad to uh, completion in 1869, but what happened in that industry from 1869 on when it was the, America's first big business when it really fueled the Gilded Age. This is where all the wealth came uh, in the United States between the 1870s and, and maybe 1910, 1915, or up to the First World War. Uh, and it was really a story of, of fascinating characters. Some really were scoundrels and crooks. Some were uh, basically important financiers who maybe weren't dishonest, but uh, ran uh, an economy uh, in a way that we we just don't allow individuals to do that anymore. Okay, so let's go back to the Transcontinental Railroad. I remember in elementary school, I think they they tried to nail the last spike and the guy missed or something like that. It's a story we were told or something. But you you have said that story's been told quite often. But maybe refresh our memory. Transcontinental Railroad. What's going on in the U.S.? Why was it such a big deal? And because it sets up the launch for your book, as you said. Right. Well, in the 1850s, 1860s, the railroad industry was developing fairly rapidly, but mostly in the Northeast and out as far as um, as, as far as Chicago, let's say. Um, so there was, a, you know, a pretty uh, uh, thorough uh, network of uh, rail companies at that time, but we didn't have anything that really crossed to the other end of the continent. And there was a lot of doubt as to whether that was uh, technologically possible, financially possible, and necessary. But then came the Civil War, and it became clear that there had to be a way for the Union, essentially, to make sure that California uh, remained part of of the union, that it was bound to the rest of the country. And this was very important, uh, obviously, uh, during the Civil War. So the the impetus to build the Transcontinental Railroad grew during that time. It really started with uh, some legislation that was signed by Abraham Lincoln uh, during the war to basically provide funding. Uh, and the story uh, that, that's been told many times is how the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific uh, uh, basically came together at Promontory Summit, Utah in 1869. There was the uh, the driving of the Golden Spike. I think, as you mentioned, uh, the, uh, the drivers of the Golden Spike missed it a couple of times before actually hitting it with the mallet. But the Union Pacific basically ran from the Mississippi River or Omaha uh, West and the Central Pacific started in Sacramento and went east. And the idea was for them to meet up somewhere along the, the way and really complete the American Railroad Network. And that's what happened in 1869. It really did bind the West to uh, what up until that point had been the Western United States, which we now think of as the Midwest, and then to the East. So uh, it was a seminal moment in the American pageant, uh, there was a, a, tele a, a, a telegraph station at Promontory Summit with a telegraph operator whose job it was to basically transmit that moment when the golden spike was driven. Uh, that happened, there were celebrations in New York City, there were celebrations in San Francisco. It, it was really seen by the American public 
as uh, basically an expression of manifest destiny of, of American know-how and American muscular uh, uh, industry. That's kind of a lead up to my next question, which is what was the general feel of people traveling on trains? So they have this ethos of, hey, we've done it, but generally by this time, were people comfortable traveling on trains long distances compared to what they've been used to historically? Well, they were getting comfortable. Uh, th th these wouldn't be comfortable trips for us today. Uh, you know, everything is sort of relative. Uh, but once uh, people were able to travel uh, across the country, we had uh, uh, American enterprise basically stepped in. George Pullman created the Pullman um, sleeping car so that uh, people could sleep. Th these were trips that would take uh, five days, maybe more. Um, and for at least for the first uh, many years, uh, it was you you could you could travel in what seemed to those people, to people at that time, to be relative comfort. The problem was, was that there was no coordination among the various companies that were operating parts of the uh, uh, of, of the line. Uh, so you, you might be dropped off Omaha or Council Bluffs and have to wait hours, sometimes days, for the onward trip. Um, so this was this was a burden. One of the first families to make that trip from uh, the East Coast all the way to the West was uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, his wife, uh, a niece, and uh, some other family members. They did it within a couple of months of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. And for J.P. Morgan, it was a business trip. Basically, he was examining um, uh, an enterprise that his family was going to be uh, investing in and representing investors uh, in. So he needed to see how it worked. And uh, uh, Morgan's wife kept a diary, which I accessed at the Morgan Library, in which she talked about the various privations uh, en route, the the delays, the, uh, the abandonment at, at way stations, the lack of the difficulty of finding a decent meal uh, all these things. So, um, and this was, of course, one of the richest families in the country. So uh, they didn't travel without a certain amount of difficulty. But uh, as time went on, uh, the the route became uh, more standardized. Uh, the rail cars became uh, more comfortable, and it became a, a much more common uh, uh, effort to to take take the train all the way from the East Coast to the West. You couldn't, for many years, you couldn't actually get to San Francisco. You had to stop in Sacramento and then take a, a boat from Sacramento uh, the rest of the way, but eventually it all got connected. And just real quick on that, at what point does the, the travel from a cost perspective become accessible to the average American? Well, there were various uh, classes, um, travel was fairly accessible economically okay. to uh, basically to the middle class and the upper middle class. Um, it wasn't long before you, you had all uh, 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 train travel became sort of a, a melting pot. Um, now there were, um, segregated cars for, for blacks. There were segregated cars for, uh, Chinese uh, passengers, but other than that, um, you might, you know, if you were a middle-class traveler, you might be sharing your, uh, your trip with, uh, Europeans, with workers from, uh, middle Europe. Um, uh, and then, uh, it, uh, once again, it wasn't long before women started traveling on their own and there were, uh, lots of, uh, journal articles and books written by, female travelers talking about how if you're a woman traveling alone uh, on on the train, here's what you should expect and here's how you should prepare and here's how you should protect yourself and all these, <laughs> these things. So it became a fairly common mm. event. Okay. So you mentioned the Transcontinental Railroad kind of spurs on this American ingenuity, this American know-how, this American um, come-togetherness, if you will, um, which launches an industry. And in this industry, 
Um, there's gonna be good people, bad people, but, but this, this, I want to attack this at levels as possible. Let's talk about just the common laborer. What was it like through this gilded age working on the railroad, the conditions? Um, was there opportunities for these people to move up to the ranks? Uh, what was their, their careers like? Yeah. Um, the, the development of the railroads and of course the, the transcontinental railroad that we think of that was completed in 69 was the first of four or five uh, transcontinental railroads that were built in those first uh, couple of decades. The Santa Fe, there was the, the Northern Pacific, uh, and there were others. It became a very competitive route. It was great for American laborers. Um, they could go, they would, they would sign on with a rail company that was basically pushing west. They would help uh, to build uh, the, the route. Um, there would be great demand for skilled laborers to work as locomotive engineers and others. And then when, uh, when one route was completed, they would move on to the next. Um, and that uh, continued, uh, that really uh, kept going for a decade or two. Um, and in the, in the course of that, we actually saw the beginning of uh, organized labor. Uh, the skilled workers organized into unions, the, the unskilled workers organized into unions. The American Railroad Union um, was uh, for a time the biggest union in the country. It was headed by Eugene V. Debs. Now, that was uh, the, the first position he had that brought him to national renown. And then of course, as, as I'm sure you know, he ran for president several times on the socialist ticket. Um, what, what was happening though, uh, you know, we saw the, the usual trajectory of capitalism. Uh, there came a point when uh, the construction um, effort slowed down. Uh, America entered uh, a, a couple of, they were called panics, at the time, we would think of them as recessions or depressions. And because of the financial structure of the railroad industry, the, the, railroad, the, the, the railroads had few options, at least as they saw it, to cut costs other than to lay off workers. So there were waves of layoffs um, that led to a huge strike in the 1880s. It started at the Pullman uh, factory in, in Chicago and then spread, really threatened the entire industry. Uh, this was Eugene Debs's, uh, uh, he, he took the lead. He, he didn't really want his members to go on strike, but once they did, he was their leader. Um, and that strike ended when Grover Cleveland basically sent in the troops to force uh, workers back to work. What was that like? Well, it was violent, um, and it really uh, raised questions about where the uh, U.S. government stood uh, on the question of the rights of workers. Um, Cleveland's actions of allowing troops to be deployed uh, in that strike really um, uh, put him on the back foot. It really did not stand him in good stead with the voters or with the, the, the rest of the Democratic Party. And he, he was one of the early Democrats. Um, one of the ways that he sort of uh, tried to make amends was by uh, signing the legislation that created Labor Day. So we got Labor Day out of it, uh, although the, uh, May Day, before Cleveland uh, established Labor Day, May Day was sort of a labor uh, celebration. And of course, he moved it to, to September. But um, Cleveland's administration, uh, uh, you know, his top, his secretaries, his cabinet, it was full of railroad executives, some of whom were still collecting money from railroad employers while they were serving in the government. So uh, it was, it, it, it was a bad scene. Uh, basically, it was bad politics. And it was uh, basically bad for the Democratic Party of that era. And I don't know if the, the, the scope of your research covered this, but it's a question I've had for many years. Um, the right-of-way, the, the, the types of right-of-ways that the railroads acquired is, is fee, and they actually have 
you know, supreme rights over roads. We, you might not think about it, but when you pull up the train track, we have to yield to the train, not the other way around. What, what did you ever look into the genesis, genesis of that and how that came about and why the railroads have or were able to obtain such permanent uh, compared to a normal right of way? Well, there were uh, different railroads uh, had uh, different means of acquiring rights. The Union Pacific and the Central Pacific, when they were building the first trans transcontinental railroad, they they had uh, uh, essentially rights that were granted by the federal government. Uh, the, the government wanted this railroad to be built, and it was willing to subsidize the construction. So uh, essentially. Uh, the government um, provided the, those railroads with the land that they needed, uh, uh, basically to several miles in width on both sides of, uh, of the right-of-way, and then paid by the mile for them to, to build that out. Um, others basically, uh, you, you know, when we're talking about railroads that are crossing the prairie, um, they were crossing territory that really wasn't claimed by anyone other than Indian tribes. And the government was perfectly content to move those Indian tribes away. And this was, in fact, uh, one of the, the sources of uh, the, the Indian wars, that is the wars between uh, white Americans and the white government and the Indian tribes, uh, because the government had been brought in to, by the railroads and by by the settlers that the railroads were bringing into this territory to move the Indians out, um, and that really was, uh, you know, obviously led up to Little Bighorn uh, was sort of an artifact uh, of that process. But really, in crossing most of this territory, uh, nobody really thought that there there was ownership that had to be condemned. Uh, it was just taken and they still have it today <laughs> it's well they uh, they still have some of it today i mean the 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 rights that they have have evolved over time because there are competing rights and competing claims and competing uses for for all of this um territory okay so we talked about the the kind of people on the ground the labor um who funded this and why were they interested in funding this? Well, that's a great, that really is the story of the first 10 or 20 years of the railroad industry after 1869. Um, the railroads were a new technology. They were a really promising technology. They were seen as um, a very likely spur to further development of the United States moving west from the Northeast. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of investor interest in the railroads, uh, particularly interest from German German investors and British investors. The agent for a lot of the British investors was was the House of Morgan. Uh, J.P. Morgan's father uh, started that. He basically was representing British investors who wanted to put their money into the United States. The U.S. was was seen as just you know, tremendously economic, economically uh, promising, um, and the railroads were one of the industries, really the principal industry that had the uh, the appetite for new capital and um, and the capacity to deploy it. But in those first ten or twenty years, uh, the way. Uh, people made most of their money from railroads was not by building railroads, but by trading railroad paper, stocks and bonds. And this was the source of a lot of chicanery in that period. Um, uh, Daniel Drew uh, became one of the most famous manipulators of railroad uh, securities in, in history. Uh, Jay Gould, Jim Fisk, these are names that have gone down in history as uh, as basically financial uh, financial crooks, and for good reason. Uh, one of the uh, the earliest railroads to be financed this way was the Erie Railroad, which served uh, the coal fields of Western Pennsylvania and brought coal uh, basically to New York and Boston. It was it, its paper was traded so. Uh, uh, voraciously in that period that the railroad became known 
as the Scarlet Woman of Wall Street because <laughs> it has it just been manipulated and abused uh, so many times. And Daniel Drew was a member of the Erie Railroad's board and was trading paper against it. Yeah, so let me unpack uh, real quick on this trading paper because um, I'm, I'm, I mean, understand how stocks are traded today, but in this time period, how, how are they trading it and manipulating it? Um, what's what's going on here? Well, there were stock and bond exchange exchanges and and brokers. Wall Street was in full cry. Uh, and basically, um, you were buying railroad securities. Um, you weren't paying much attention to what the financial condition or strength was of the underlying railroad. You were basically buying paper, buying these, these securities and the expectation that there would be another guy down the line who would buy it from you at a higher price. We still see this, you know, it's the greater fool theory. Uh, you know, you can buy something that doesn't have any or much intrinsic value, but if there's enough interest that some fool will buy it from you, then you can make money from it. And that went on for a long, long time. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who started out as a steamship tycoon uh, and then moved into railroads in the 1880s, um, basically participated in this, almost got driven into bankruptcy because he had so many uh, uh, manipulators on the other side of his trades but uh, he had the, the financial ability to hang into these markets long enough to, to see them come around and for him to, to make money. I mean, he, uh, he, he died as the richest man in America. So were uh, the railroads not making money? I, I guess I'm, that's the, the disconnect. I'm the not... first, no, yeah, well, that, that's, you're, you're quite right. In the, those first decades, railroads were not profitable. Uh, and that's why the focus was on flipping railroad securities um, the railroads were, uh, they were raising a lot of capital. They weren't deploying it very wisely or, or very thoroughly. There was a lot of what was known as watered stock. I mean, a railroad might have, uh, I mean, pick a, pick a number, millions and millions of dollars in capital. These are stocks that it had to serve and bonds that it had to pay off was not, but, but would not be getting the revenues necessary to, uh, to pay them off. The Union Pacific went through four or five different ownerships uh, re and receiverships because it had been so profligate in raising money that it simply could not pay off the securities and had to go bankrupt. Mm. Okay, and just on this money question, you mentioned that the, the Brits and the Germans were sending money over here. What was going on with railroads globally? Was the U.S. leading, or had they already built? And that, like, why is the U.S. the focus? Just longer distances. Yes, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the, the, uh, Europe was uh, much better developed in terms of railroad service than as it is, I think, now because the distances were shorter, and the alternative routes of transportation were were fewer. Uh, when American railroads started pushing west, we're talking about thousands of miles of trackage that had to be built and maintained uh, with all, um, not just the, the physical plant, but, uh, but, but workers and, um, and ancillary industries. I mean, uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, became a steel tycoon by selling steel to the railroads for rails. Um, so you had a lot of follow-on industries that were developed in the United States because the railroads were, were, were so active. And as I said, the railroads were America's first big business. And because they got so big and it was such a complicated uh, industry to, to operate, uh, a lot of um, uh, corporate management methods that we still see today were developed in that era because you, you just, you know, you had to have new ways of keeping the books. You had to have new ways of coordinating with not only uh, your partners, but your rivals so that a passenger could get from one end of the country to the other without these, as I said, these privations in the earliest days. Yeah, you can't get off the train and there's an in and out Starbucks and a Target to go get some clothes or whatever you need. And so you, you're talking about that earlier. I was just like, God, you get off a train and you're in the, in the middle of 
know, Kansas and there's nothing there. You can't, you don't have a cell phone. Like it, it's gotta be a little, had to be a little nerve wracking if you got left not knowing when the next train might come or, or whatever. I could, I can see that being um, a little bit dramatic. They were, they were a little bit more brave than I am. I'll put it like that. Well, right. But, uh, but you know, everything's relative. I mean, the times change and we change with the times, but in that, in, in that era, uh, uh people would go in they they would start these trips knowing that they were probably going to run into this right at one point or another and they were uh it, it didn't necessarily make it easy but they were at least uh, psychologically prepared for uh these sorts of trip interruptions so you mentioned the investors and let's go back to the land for a second could they have built these railroads without the help of the government giving them the land uh, well, some did. Uh, the Northern Pacific, which was built by uh, a, a tycoon named James Hill, uh, Hill was always very proud of the fact that he didn't take anything from the government. He didn't take land grants from them. He didn't take subsidies. He built it all himself, and he ran his line uh, basically from Chicago to uh, to Washington and and Oregon, and it was very successful. He he was one of the most successful. Uh, railroad presidents that, that we ever had. Um, and he did it basically all by himself. I mean, he would basically make deals with major landowners. He made deals with the Weyerhaeuser family, which um, uh, had a lot of uh, timber land uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And they needed Hill as much as he needed them because they needed ways to get their timber to, to market. And they used his trains to do it. Oh, that's interesting. So, okay, you've thrown out a few names there. Let's let's circle back. You mentioned Daniel Drew. Um, I think I don't know if you said scoundrel, but something something to that effect. So, who's Daniel Drew, and how does he get into this this racket of trading stocks? Um, and and how, you know, does was he come from wealth? Did he acquire the wealth? Uh, how did that happen? Uh, no, uh, Daniel Drew did not come from wealth, but he had a sort of preternatural skill at um, basically trading paper and uh, controlling investors into his schemes. Um, it's said that the, the term watered stock uh, originated with Daniel Drew uh, because what he would do in, in the earliest iteration of his career, he would basically um, contract to bring uh, livestock to market uh, in New York. He, he originated in, in upstate New York um, and what he and be, and because uh, beef or beeves or cattle were basically priced at the market based on their weight, what he would do is he would starve them along the way and then bring them to a salt lick and have them uh, basically lick up salt and then gorge on water so that you he would then bring them to uh, to market the uh, the brokers at market would weigh them and they'd be weighing but mostly water, not beef. And that's, you know, that, that was watered stock, watered livestock. Oh, and that, gee, that, I would have thought watered stock was somehow tied to the paper stock, but it's actually- Well, it became stock. tied to that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it now. That's, that's yeah, like, right. Um, anyway, uh, Drew was just a master manipulator. He just had a way of persuading people that he was on the up and up, even when he was trading against them. Uh, he would- Get uh, his uh, his his victims or his targets or his or his quarries to buy stock from him, while he was selling stock. He, he was basically making profit at, at both ends, both from selling stock to his uh, his targets and then buying it buying it back at a lower price. Um, so he was famous. Drew University, which still exists in uh, New Jersey was founded by him as a Methodist seminary. Uh, and he founded it by promising that he would uh, basically put up a half a million dollars. This was in the 1870s when that was a lot of money. Uh, he died still owing about half of that. Um, he paid about 250. Uh, right. So if you actually go on the website of Drew University, they have a sort of the last time I looked at it, it was uh, sort of a uh, whitewashed version of who Daniel Drew was. But he was, 
you know, he was one of these characters who was never seen without a well-thumbed Bible in his hands. He um, he he posed as a very pious man, but uh, you know, when he took off his robe, he was cheating everybody he could. So that was Daniel Drew. Okay, and so how is he viewed? So I see how you 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 got the perspective you play there, but these um, these tycoons of real, how did they view Drew? Well, uh, he was, uh, the, the smart tycoons knew him for what he was. One of the more interesting relationships in that era was a relationship between Drew and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Um, Vanderbilt himself did not come from money. He was came from sort of rough origins. And uh, he and Drew had entered the steamship in, uh, business at around the same time. Vanderbilt was smarter than Drew, but always had sort of a soft spot in his heart for Drew that that Vanderbilt's own partners could never quite understand. You know, was it because they he saw something in Drew that reminded him of himself, or was he amused? But uh, there were times when Vanderbilt and Drew were partners. There were times when they were enemies. There were times when they cheated each other. And there were several occasions in which Drew was about basically about to be rendered bankrupt by Vanderbilt. And he would essentially go to Vanderbilt on his knees and plead with him to, you know, to let him go. Uh, and Vanderbilt would, would say, uh, okay, you know, and basically allow him to pay off his debts. So should we view Vanderbilt as a good guy then? Well, Vanderbilt was... Um, I, I think it would be unfair to say that Vanderbilt was dishonest or crooked, but he was really, um, he was a monopolist. Um, he uh, was a very demanding uh, businessman. One of the interesting things about Vanderbilt is that he was uh, one of the early railroad tycoons who understood that the way to make money in railroads was going to cease being the trading of paper, but would begin to be uh, basically making the railroads profitable. Uh, and that is improving their physical condition, uh, making them more serviceable to freight shippers and passengers and make money that way. So uh, he brought a certain amount of intelligence to the railroad industry that it hadn't had before him, but he was an uncompromising um, uh, competitor of all the other railroads uh, that he that he encountered. Um, so, um, so I think Vanderbilt's a fascinating character, but um, but on the whole, I think we'd have to credit him with doing more building than tearing down. And it's interesting because going back to your point a few minutes ago is. You said, I think 10 to 15 years, really, the railroads were about trading. And so there's a lot of all kinds of shenanigans going on, cooking the books, I'm sure, just all kinds of stuff going on. You got something like Drew. And if Vanderbilt, um, if I'm understanding correctly, he's bringing at least some sense of integrity, which is we're going to actually make this a legitimate business. Now, compare him versus James Hill, who you said out west didn't take government subsidies, loans, et cetera. He built it all by him you know, through his financiers. Um, what would be the difference between Hill and Vanderbilt? Well, Hill came along a little bit later, but I but they both had uh, essentially uh, this uh, a, a very similar approach. Now, one thing that uh, that set Hill apart from a, a lot of his uh, compatriots or colleagues was that Hill was willing to uh, charge passengers and shippers less than the market would bear because he had an interest in actually building up those markets. And he was very proud of that. He'd say, you know, I could have charged everybody much more, but I didn't because I wanted that I wanted these businesses to develop. I wanted the timber business to develop. I wanted coal uh, to develop. I wanted wheat and corn uh, to be grown in, in these regions that I was crossing with my railroads. And at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, we gave a speech to his, his shareholders, he made a, a very strong point about that. He said, you know, I did this not only for you, but for the entire region and the entire community, and we have ended up profiting from it. Vanderbilt, I think, didn't have quite the same 
uh, attitude. He knew he had a ready market because he was operating mostly in the Northeast and, and, and from the Eastern seaboard out to Chicago. Uh, he was much more interested in making sure that he survived or he prevailed over competing rail lines in his region. Mm. So who was your favorite character to study during writing this book? I think the uh, my favorite, the most appealing character, I mean, there is so many of them, you know, uh, have appealing qualities, um, you know, that, that are different and not all because uh, they're honest. Um, but I think the, the, the most interesting character is E.H. Harriman, who, you know, if you've seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, if you've seen that movie, um, you know, there are scenes in which Butch Cassidy and his gang basically uh, rob the Union Pacific train. And there's a Union Pacific clerk on board who says, you know, and Butch Cassidy says, come on out, you know, let us go in there and we'll take the safe. And the, the clerk says, I promised Mr. E.H. Harriman that I would not, that I, that I would protect his property. And then they blow him up, <laughs> essentially. And there's a, a, a scene that follows in which uh, Butch and Sundance try to rob the Union Pacific again, and they start getting chased by this this group of uh, of uh, uh, guards who've been hired by E.H. Harriman to chase away the train robbers. Uh, as it turns out, that's a true story. Harriman did hire uh, lawmen basically to stop train robberies on the Union Pacific, and for him, this was an important business development effort because if the, the Union Pacific became known as the safest transcontinental railroad, so he got more business that way. Uh, and the train robbers went to the Santa Fe uh, and, and would, would rob that. So, uh, but Harriman, uh, you know, he came relatively late into the story. He also came from no money. He started on Wall Street where he had just amazing talent uh, as a Wall Street broker. And then through his fiance and later wife, he became involved in the railroad industry. And he turned out to be the best, the, 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 the most uh, uh, painstaking operator of railroads uh, in America up to that time. He, Harriman would buy a, a, a railroad company. And the first thing he would do is he would ride on that railroad at the front of the train and keep his eye on every every mile of track to see what was good, what was bad, what needed to be improved. And then he would spend the money to improve it so that the railroad would operate well. He was sort of Vanderbilt with more integrity and I think somewhat more intelligence, but it was the same principle is, uh, is make the railroad work well and, uh, and you will make money. Um, he also was uh, very philanthropically oriented. Uh, in 1899, while he was in this knockdown dragout fight with Pierpont Morgan uh, over, uh, over a railroad, basically over control of the railroad industry, he took two months off and led a scientific expedition to Alaska. Uh, he had John Muir on board um, and he basically turned the route over to 30 scientists who he brought along and said, you, you know, you tell us where to go. Um, the result of that, the Alaska expedition, it was an eight volume report that is now at the Smithsonian Institution, still gets consulted by okay. scientists uh, and explorers today. Is that, is that available online to read that or is it only at the Smithsonian? Oh, no, you no. Well, no, it's been published. I mean, okay. you can pull down the, the volumes, you know, uh, he had artists, um, he had uh, naturalists. He he just had a, a huge scientific group with him. And no, it's it's a famous, basically, it's a famous moment in American natural history. Huh. Okay, I'll see if I can link to that for the listeners in the show notes. Okay, just um, one quick question on the politicians of the time. Obviously, they're connected in on, on, on this on some level. Who were the good ones? Who were the bad ones? All of them good, all of them bad. Well, uh, some were good, some were bad. I mean, it was a very different 
America in that era and a very different American politics. Um, you know, if we're talking about economic history, the American government did not have much power at the time. So when a crisis came in the markets, basically it was up to uh, individual financiers, including Pierpont Morgan, to save the American economy, which they did. Uh, that, uh, so uh, basically this was an era where there was very little regulation of the investment markets, very little uh, regulation of industry. Uh, the, um, uh, the ICC was created around the 1870s or 1880s, and it was created by essentially at the behest of the railroad industry, which needed a regulator to limit the, the, the really wasteful competition that they were all engaging in with one another. So they thought a federal regulator who they could control would maybe uh, make the whole industry more profitable. Um, this is the era when 1889, we got the Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, so we began to see politics were moving toward some sort of regulation of big money. Um, but that, that, that the Sherman Act really wasn't used very much until well into the 20th century. Okay. A few final questions, a little bit more rapid fire, if you will. Okay. What's the one change? If you could go back in history and say, hey, we've got to make this one change during this period of time, what would it be? I think the one change would have been to uh, make sure that the railroad industry remained uh, in an investment mode for longer than it did. Um, by the first decade of the 20th century, the railroads were, were no longer building as much as they had. And by the beginning of World War I, uh, the American government discovered that the entire railroad system was in very bad shape. Um, so it had to nationalize the railroads just so that it could move troops around the country and then get them to Europe for the war. So I think um, there needed to be much more rational oversight of how the railroads were building and investing than, than we got. And I think because we didn't have that, the railroads never really got to the point where they became a dominant mode of transportation here as they are still in Europe. Okay. What was the biggest surprise in writing this book? Uh, well, I think the biggest surprise was uh, basically the career of, of Harriman. Um, he's not very well known. Uh, he didn't leave a memoir. Um, so um, so everything about him is, is sort of a revelation. The, the, the other interesting uh surprise, I guess, is how effective the Senate, uh, Congress ended up being in 1912 when it first put J.P. Morgan and his cronies on the block and had an investigation of what was then known as the money trust. And that really bore fruit. In fact, uh, Morgan being brought in and forced to testify, uh, Morgan's family thought that basically shortened his life because it was such a strain. So uh, we just don't have that sort of uh, energetic investigation of financial affairs today that we had even then. What's the one question you wish you could have answered, but probably never will? <laughs> well, let's see. That's a that's a that's a good question. There, um, uh, I I think it really is um, you know a question that we have today, which is you know what drives these people. Uh, people like uh, Vanderbilt and Gould and Fisk and Henry Villard and uh, and E.H. Harriman to basically commit their lives to this complicated, um, uh, brutal business. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier you started this and you did a feasibility study on the Transcontinental Railroad. You said, hey, there's too much there. This is what I want to write on. What is left to explore in this period? I'm sure there's a lot of meat on the bone still that left that needs to be explored. So what else is there to explore in this time period? Yeah, I think the Gilded Age, uh, you know, is just a, 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 an endless uh, source of interesting stories and interesting lessons. And I think what we will always profit from exploring is 
how the Gilded Age of, of that era unfolded and what it tells us about the way uh, business operates today. And we see a lot of similarities, or at least I did, in the rise and fall of the railroad tycoons and the rise and fall of tech tycoons today. I think it's it's a very similar process that uh, we can learn from. And I think if we learned from it more, we might have been more prepared to deal with um, the rise of social media and technology and the the uses to which it's put that that are not really in the public interest. Okay. Iron Empires is again the book, Robert Barron's Railroads and the Making of Modern America. We'll link to that in the show notes so people go check it out. Uh, where else do you want us to send people to? And do you have an upcoming project that we can look forward to? Right. Well, my website is michaelhiltzik.com. And uh, Iron Empires was my seventh book. So all seven uh, are still in print and anybody can order them from any of the sources there. The book I'm working on now, my eighth book, which will be published in 2024, is a history of California. So it's a big subject, but a really fascinating subject. And I'm learning so much more about California that I I, I didn't know I didn't know uh, in the process. It's a great pageant uh, of history. And the theme really is uh, what California can has taught the rest of the country and can teach us in the future. And it's not all stuff that we want to know and it's not all good but it's all fascinating well i bet i mean that's the, that's like my head's just spinning thinking about trying to write a, a history of california a lot, a lot has happened there so best of luck on that and uh look forward to reading it when it comes out thank you so much for your time today we'll link to all this in the show notes for the listeners to go check out and uh, best of luck on your next project Okay, thanks a lot. This has been great. Really enjoyed it. Okay, there it is, my interview with Michael Hiltzik. Hope you enjoyed that. Go over to warroommedia.com. The newsletter is free. If you want to support and comment, be a part of the community, that is a very, very cheap price to pay. We'd love for your support. No ads, just listener-supported. That's how we're going to do this show moving forward, unless they offer me Joe Rogan money. Listen, Joe Rogan money, it's just, it's just do what you got to do, right? Okay. We'll talk tomorrow.